for our good. Let us attend to its reading. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Election day has come and gone, although vote counting, I suppose, remains. Discovering ballots remains, to some people's surprise, I suppose. Uh, Hopefully, none of you are too sad about that, that election day is gone. Thankfully, to uh, a good Calvinist, every day is election day, because uh, every day is a good day to remember God's election of us in eternity past, manifested in history, and giving us assurance of our salvation even to the end of the age. Uh, When we speak of election, eternal election, uh, we speak of what we might call uh, the very beginning of God's descending to us in redemption. It goes as far back as our minds can possibly go. You know, to the earth, the time of the the earth's foundations were laid, and even before that, as it says here in 2 Timothy, before time itself began. Why do we do this? Why why do we place emphasis on these doctrines, and specifically this doctrine? As Reformed folks, uh, we treasure this doctrine. It's so important, it's so clear in Scripture. And it's such a wonderful blessing. Why do we do this? We do this because it brings great glory to God. It magnifies the praise of his grace. It, it forces us to apprehend more clearly and in more significant and life-changing ways the mercy of God in Christ. And that, of course, produces in our hearts much greater thankfulness. And it produces in our lives much greater faith working through love. That we're reminded again and again and again it comes back to God's love for us. That goes back to before the foundations of the earth were laid. And and we give all kinds of effort in glorifying God. But as we fall short, remember that God's work is perfect. And in God's perfect work, he has chosen to uh, to save his people. The Synod of Dort was an international council of theologians called to deal with a matter that had come upon, specifically upon uh, the Dutch churches of that, of that time, and was uh, spreading all kinds of these, uh, this issue was spreading all kinds of problems, stemming from the teaching of Jacob Arminius, who had passed away at that time, but his influence was still um, very much felt. So that synod was called uh, 400 years ago, um, this is the anniversary of that. So a lot of things going on today. We had the Synod of Dort, we had World War I uh, 14 years ago today. My younger sister also was diagnosed with leukemia. So November 11th, a special day in, uh, in my family's life as well. From this synod came these core doctrines 
that we affectionately call tulip and really gives us a frame of reference for the doctrines of grace. Really, that's what you could call it, the the doctrines of grace, the the triumph of God's grace at uh, the Synod of Dort. So we'll consider tonight the first main point of doctrine, eternal election and reprobation. Our standards make uh, very clear that God has elected a definite number of people to eternal life. And he passes over others and leaves them in their sin. You have this sense of, of in the canons of Dort, election being a, a, a proactive act of God, decree of God rooted in eternity. Reprobation is, is more this passing over, highlighting the responsibility that all people have for their sin and the, their accountability before God uh, for which they will answer on the day of judgment. This does not make God unjust because God is praised in his justice God is glorified in his justice God is also glorified in his grace one thing that's important with studying doctrinal doctrinal standards like the canons of Dort is understanding a God-centered view of salvation that's really I think the most applicable thing for us as we take these truths from scripture and we try to grow in grace from it do we have a God-centered view of salvation Do we view it as God's work from beginning to end? He has elected us. Regeneration is God's work as the gospel is preached. He he gives life and immortality through the proclamation of the gospel, effectually calling us. We read in Ephesians 2 that faith is the gift of God. He grants faith in what he does. He justifies. He's the one who declares us forgiven and righteous. And then he sanctifies us, for it is him, Philippians 1, who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then, of course, he glorifies us. He will raise us up and he will give us bodies that will be made to be like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. And when we have a God-centered view of salvation... It produces for us humility, gratitude, and a proper zeal for sanctification. Humility, gratitude, and a proper zeal uh, for sanctification. So let's consider these things tonight as we consider this, uh, this short verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1. First, salvation is not the product of our many decisions, but of God's one decision. Election, we speak of God's one decision. And in that, we're brought forth to the truth of the the, the unity of God's person. We say that God is simple and human beings are complex. That means that that God is not composed of parts. And his simplicity uh, reminds us that he, he is not a God who is changing and shifting and wondering what he should do. Election is the single decision of God. When you think about the the election of God, some people have said that it's, it's easier to think about election if you cast it in terms of God's foreknowledge, right? So some people say that, well, what election means is that God looked down the corridors of time and he saw perhaps who would believe in him. He saw perhaps who would live in a righteous way, right? Who, who would live in an obedient way. And after that, God elected those people. Those are the people whom he made 
elect. This was one of the errors that, uh, that the theologians were wrestling with at the Synod of Dort. Is that what election is? Is God looking down the corridors of time and looking at what people are doing or what people are believing or professing? 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says that our salvation, which we enjoy, is not dependent on, quote, anything we have done, our deeds. This is a Greek word you might translate simply as works. When Paul uses this word, it's Greek word erga, when Paul uses this word, uh, what it means is it's the sum of our moral character. Looking at the things that you do in your life and, and, and sort of putting that all together and saying that's the sum of someone's moral character. Is it more good than bad? Is it more bad than good? Etc. Romans 2.6, Paul uses this word. He says, God will render to each one according to his works, according to his deeds. God will judge each person according to the sum of their moral character. John 3.20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Some total of your life. So Paul says in very clear terms that God does not save us. Salvation is not dependent upon anything that we have done, our works. He does not give salvation on the basis of our moral character. He does not give it on the basis of sort of the the, the conglomeration of your own performance. It's important to understand this was the triumph of, of election at the Synod of Dort. It's always God's action first in saving and having a God-centered view of salvation. We do have action that goes prior to God saving us. It's called sin, and it's called uh, rebellion. So it's not act. It's not our our deeds. It's not our works. Some people said, "Well, maybe it's maybe it's faith. Maybe God looked down the corridors of time and said, who is it that will believe in me? Who is it that that will uh, have faith in me? I'll make them elect.'" It's not uh, perseverance, it's not deeds, is it faith? But all of that would make human saving action antecedent before the saving work of God in election, which defies the teaching of Scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, even if election were based on foreseen faith, or foreseen perseverance, or foreseen works, then those who were deemed worthy of being made part of the elect could boast. If God looks down the corridors of time and says, all right, who deserves this? That would mean that human beings could boast. Paul says something different. All of God's action is primary, and it comes first in salvation. One application of that, as we just think about it, any attempt to place man's faith or his works prior to God's grace does not deal honestly. It does not square with the reality of our own sinfulness. See, many of us are uh, we're, we're legalists at heart. We still have this sense that God looks upon us on the basis of our deeds. When people first begin to agree with the the standard of righteousness found in in God's word. Uh, Often the first reaction is to begin to live as if we can measure up to that standard. 
Okay, you know, if people start to believe God's word is true, well, what I need to do then is I need to, to earn my salvation. I need, I need to earn God's favor. Uh, they become like eager new homeowners, right? You buy a house for the first time and, and you want to make the outside look really nice. So you start pulling away all of, all of the old landscaping, all of the old bushes. You pull it away and then you start digging in the ground and, and you find some little stones here and there. It's no problem removing those. It's kind of like when we're trying to defeat our own sin, you know, our outbursts of anger or uh, the, the specific actions that may just, in a sense, seem particularly vile, right? Very obvious sins. Perhaps we can weed those away from our lives. And like those eager home buyers moving away those, those rocks, but suddenly you start to see that those small stones get bigger and bigger and you're weeding away and you're trying to rid all of this from your life. But then all of a sudden you hit complete bedrock, right? Solid rock. Uh, there's no fresh soil. All it is is stone. And that is like the, the, the corruption of our sinful hearts, our sinful nature. See, there's parts of us that we will not be able to eradicate in this life. We will not be able to completely do away with our fallenness, with uh, the many things that pull us back into failing in thought and in word and in deed. So you want to build a garden, but there's bedrock. Well, what can you do? You have a couple options. Your first option is to run away. Run away. It's hopeless. God's standard of righteousness is too much. Your second option might be, well, become a Pharisee. Become a Pharisee. Right? Put, some, put some soil on top of that bedrock and plant some nice-looking flowers so that you can look better than your neighbors. But the problem is that whatever you plant on that soil resting on bedrock is not going to stand the test of time. By the time the day of judgment comes, it will be shriveled up. It will be gone. Your third option, the most dangerous option, shorten the yardstick of God's law. As time goes by, less and less things become sin in your mind. Well, I used to think that was sinful, but now I'm really not so sure. It seems like my emotions, my feelings, and uh, it's amazing how people's emotions and feelings can become synthesized with the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading me to think that maybe this is no longer sinful. And how many people in the church today are reasoning along the same lines calling evil good and good evil, shortening the yardstick, another option that you have. Any kind of of attempt to place human action prior to God's in salvation, that it was because of our foreseen fate, that it was because of what God saw uh, us doing, looking down the corridors of time, doesn't square with our hearts of stone. Our hearts of stone. Our hearts of stone need to be brought to the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ. This is why the canons do such a wonderful job of emphasizing the proclamation of the gospel. Gospel is to be proclaimed to all because this human nature, this sinful nature is corrupt and it's found in all, in all. All of our lives, it's a conglomeration of flawed decisions, failures, But the one singular decision of God to save a definite number of people out of their sin, that is election. And that is good news for us tonight. Canons say this, There are not various decrees of election, but one and the same decree respecting all those who shall be saved, both under the Old and New Testament, since the scripture declares the good pleasure, purpose, and counsel of of the divine will to be one, according to which he has chosen us from eternity, both to grace 
and to glory, to salvation and to the way of salvation, which he has ordained that we should walk therein. Election is the product of the one decision of God from all, eterni- uh, from all eternity. So, I've uh, spilled the beans there right before I said it, but when and why has God elected us? When and why? Paul says, before the beginning of time, as the NIV translated. You might translate this as we said, before time itself. Again, from from the canons. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, he has out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from the primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, he has chosen a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. Titus chapter 1, Paul speaks of faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God does not lie, and God is eternal. He always has been, he always will be. From everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the world. There you were, from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90, verse 2. God does not lie. He has always been, he always has been, and he always will be. And he promised eternal life to those whom he chose before the foundations of the world. God is beyond our comprehension. He spoke everything into existence And he is eternal. Time is but a brief hiccup in the scheme of eternity. And yet God works within time to give us the greatest gift of all, eternal life, which we did not deserve. But yet uh, he has done it still. Why? So when has God saved us? Before time itself. Why has he saved us? He has done all of this to magnify the riches of his glorious grace. He has done this to glorify his name. He has done this to exalt himself. Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Right? He is, he is going to do this. He is doing this before the eyes of the world. And when Jesus Christ comes again, he will be vindicated as a righteous God, as a powerful God, who saved his own and who claimed them for himself. He does all things for the glory of his name. He does all things for the magnification of himself. Is that selfish? No. No, it is not. Think about what he does as the greatest part of the magnifying of his name. He magnifies his grace. So the thing that glorifies him the most is that which grants us eternal life out of our sin and into salvation. Moreover, in saving us, he is giving us the only thing that can truly satisfy us. The only thing that can truly bring us joy is God himself. We were made for him. 
He, he brings us into his presence. He brings us into his blessedness in salvation. He gives us the one thing for which our hearts so long. So in the magnifying of his name, he is saving sinners. And that is what glorifies his name. I love this, this illustration, and I've used it before on, on you all, I know, so I apologize, but it fits well. Jack Nicholas was uh, playing the Masters Golf Tournament in 1986, and his son was caddying for him. And uh, his son was, you know, not a magnificent golfer or anything. It was more of a, of a nice thing that a father and son can do, probably the greatest golfer of all time, wanted his son to caddy for him. Uh, Masters is a big deal as a golf tournament, and Jack was certainly past his prime, but seemingly out of nowhere, in 1986, he wins the tournament, right? Shocked uh, the golf world, and people still often talk about this tournament. And he, of course, beloved by so many, and on on that weekend especially, people were just uh, really... Um, so excited about cheering for Jack and, and adoring him and, and, and just wondering in awe at the greatest golfer who had ever lived. And his son has been asked, you know, what, what is it like to be Jack Nicholas's son? Which, in a sense, is kind of a, a rude question to ask someone because you're sort of implying that, you know, since your father is so great and maybe you're not so great, what's it like to be related to him? His son who caddied for him in that tournament said, this is what it's like to be my father's son. I remember when he won the Masters in 1986 and on the 18th green with all the, all the crowds going crazy and everyone screaming and just adoring my dad. When he finished the 18th hole, he went and shook the hand of his opponent. The first thing he said, and I heard him, I was only a few feet away, he said, where's my son? You see, everyone there was adoring Jack Nicholas. Everyone there wanted to see him. Everyone there wanted to adore him. But what was Jack doing? What he wanted was to find his son and to give his son a hug. That's what our God is like. This whole universe declares his glory day after day, night after night. It is singing praise to him. And from all eternity, that God said, you are my son. You are my daughter. He looked at us. He made us his own. Is he mighty? Yes. Is he holy? Yes. Is he matchless? Yes. But he is merciful. He is merciful. And that's what it's like to be a child of God. To be one who is treasured and loved by one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. Why did he do it? He did it for the glory of his own name. But he did it to make us his own because he loved us. One way that we can perhaps think about eternal election and apply it to the way that we think is in, in the way that we think about uh, the sacraments. Uh, the Synod of Dort and the, and the doctrine of the Synod of Dort had a lot of important implications in thinking about uh, the Reformed sacraments. Of course, our standards say that these are not mere signs. Right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not mere signs of, of what God is doing, but they are They are signs and they are seals. They exhibit and they also convey the saving grace of God. But we don't think about them the way that the Roman Catholic Church thinks about them, right? It's not ex opere operato. We don't say, well, because someone has been baptized, they are regenerate. Because someone has taken the Lord's Supper, they have received that amount of sanctifying grace. 
But if you think about the sacraments in terms of God's election, then all of a sudden a light bulb goes on. A light bulb goes on because the, the sacraments are important. They are efficient for the elect. God exists outside of time. He calls certain people to himself. And they're efficient for the elect. It's always for the elect. God always gives his grace, but it's in God's good time. So we proclaim the promise of the sacraments, saying in God's good time, he can bring about the life that he promises in the sacraments. And then also it's in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who brings to effect the eternal decree of God. So you can have election seep into the way that you think about all kinds of doctrine in the Christian life. So when and why? From eternity, why? Because he glorifies himself and he loves us. And then to what? To what has God saved us? 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. He has called us to a holy life or to a holy calling. This calling is a special privilege and responsibility as those who are saved Those who are appointed to eternal life are called to something special, a privilege and a responsibility to serve God with our lives, to do that for which we were created. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 11, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Ephesians 4 verse 1 Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Colossians 1, verse 10. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. One thing that we understand about election as it relates to the Christian life is it is unchangeable. It is, un, it is unchangeable, and the fact that election is unchangeable, springing forth from that one decision of God, is that it gives great assurance. When you fail in your life, when, when, when you blow it in ways you couldn't even have imagined, you say, how did I get brought to this place of despair? And Satan starts to throw accusations your way. One of the things you can rest in, the unchangeability of election, the fact that God has done this from all eternity. And if you believe in Christ, if you trust in him, if you believe the gospel, then you can take comfort uh, from this glorious truth of election. Article 12, the first main point, says this. Assurance of eternal and unchangeable election to salvation is given to the chosen in due time, though by various stages and in differing measure. Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God, but by noticing within themselves, with spiritual joy and holy delight, the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. These are the things we look at and we say, I have a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for, their, for our sins, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. This assurance comes in various stages, but it comes to those who continue to trust in Christ and the truth of it being unchangeable, of it being eternal, of our God not changing his mind. This gives great assurance. So the temptation, of course, so what people say, well, if, 
if salvation is all of God, and if salvation is the eternal, in the eternal counsels of God, then human beings are just going to think that it's all right to live in whatever way that you want. If you're guaranteed to get an A in some class, what's the temptation? You know, to slack off, to not do any more work. But what if in that class where you receive a guaranteed A, what if you really respect that teacher? What if you really like that teacher? And if you want that teacher to think well of you, because I've certainly had situations like that in my life, but if I really liked the teacher, wanted him or her to respect me, then of course uh, it's, it's not really a temptation to slack off or not do anything or act like you don't care. One of the things they taught us as uh, summer camp counselors, right? You need to know every trick in the book if you're going to be a a camp counselor for third through sixth graders for an entire summer, right? So they would say, you've got to get them on your side. You've got to get them liking you that first week. And then, you know, when you you start to see one of them really acting out, you pull them aside and you say, look, so-and-so, I really like you. I think that you can do great things while you're at this camp. I think that God is doing wonderful things in your life. And I know that you can be a leader amongst these people. I know that all of your campmates, all of your bunkmates, that they are looking to you and they want to see you do well. And you see these kids, their eyes light up, you know. If we know all of these things about God and what he has done for us in eternity, we know all of these things about his love for us, his treasuring us, his carving us out for him even from eternity past, won't we take a much different approach to the way that we live our lives when we understand that he has called us to a holy life and he has called us to live in a way that is worthy of the calling that he has given to us. This is the king of the ages. This is the creator of all things visible and invisible, choosing you, placing his love upon you in all eternity past. So we, it brings assurance. But the fruit of that assurance is not a lazy approach to the Christian life. It is a proper zeal for the Christian life, but a proper zeal, not one that looks to our own sinfulness and says, I can overcome this on my own, but one that understands our own hearts of stone and looks to the rock of our salvation. So Article 13 talks about the fruit of the assurance of knowing election. It says this, In their awareness and assurance of this election, God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God. Why? Because we understand who he is. We understand that from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Humble themselves before God to adore the fathomless depth of God's mercy. What is it like to be a child of God. All the universe sings his praise and he looks at you and he chooses you to cleanse themselves and to give fervent love in return to the one who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and reflection upon it make God's children lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured. Right? Those who have life in Christ They're not just going to be lazy and say, God doesn't need me to do anything for him. No, he saves us, he justifies us, he is sanctifying us. He says, go and live. Understanding, trusting in Christ, understanding that it is God who works in you. Not lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured. Well, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm part of the elect. 
That's not what someone who has been given life in Christ, that's not what they think like. By God's just judgment, this does usually happen to those who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle and brazen talk about it, but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the Lord. We are called to walk in the ways of the Lord. So this is a God-centered view of salvation. And giving thanks to him for what he has done in eternity brings humility, it brings gratitude, it brings a proper zeal, properly oriented zeal for salvation. It's God, the electing God who pursues us, who has made us his own, who is relentless in redeeming his people and creating and forming us into the image of Christ. We think about that and understand that more and more. And I believe truly we will see the fruits of that in our Christian life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word and for what you have given to us in your truth. Pray that you would um, bring these words to our hearts and our souls and that we would meditate on them, that you would transform us by them. Thank you for this day that you have given to us. May you be honored and glorified um, in all that we do and say, cleanse us from sin and uh, equip us to be your people throughout this week. In Christ's name, amen.